Think big. Think positive. Never show any sign of weakness. Always go for the throat. Buy low, sell high. Fear, that's the other guy's problem. Nothing you have ever experienced can prepare you for the unbridled carnage you're about to witness. Right. Super Bowl, the World Series, they don't know what pressure is. In this building, it's either kill or be killed. You make no friends in the pits and you take no prisoners. One minute, you're up half a million in soybeans, and the next, boom. Your kids don't go to college and they've repossessed your Bentley. Are you with me? Hello and welcome to Turner's Take Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Turner, author of Turner's Take Newsletter, also a grain broker here at StoneX, where I specialize in grains and oil seeds. And the members on my team here in the Chicago office, we have experts in the energy markets, uh, livestock and proteins, interest rates, currencies, plastics, you name it. So if you have any questions for me, uh, feel free to reach out. My number is 312-706-7610, and email is craig.turner at stonex.com. If you like this podcast, please send it along to anyone you think might like it, and give us a positive review on iTunes. You can also check out my show notes for information on the newsletter. So let's get into it here. Uh, I'm actually in the office today, downtown Chicago. Stonex is in the Federal Reserve building, right where uh, the Chicago Board of Trade is. And we have a new media room. It is um, built for podcasting and video. So that's actually kind of pretty cool. So hopefully the sound is good. Um, so I want to talk about two things today. On the macro market side, I want to talk about uh, Michael Burry, he is the guy who is from the big short, who bet against basically subprime and was a big winner. And if you've seen the big short movie, uh, you'll know what I'm talking about. And he is in the news this week as he bought a lot of puts and split them between basically the S&P 500 and also the NASDAQ. He did it through uh, options on the ETFs, but... You know, there's been some headlines in the news that I think have been misleading. You know, his fund is about 1.6 billion, so you know, the you know, the news stories were saying something like he you know, put basically he bought puts worth 1.6 billion uh, for his portfolio on bets in the stock market. That's not exactly true. I think the notional value, you know, it may be correct, but when you buy an option, you could buy an, in the mini S&P option. We're right at the money, and you know if the stock market, if the S and P is at 4,500, and you're buying the the option for like 150, I want to say that's like three percent, right? So, but it would be worth the total value of the stock market. You only put in three percent down of the total contract value to have a at the money put for December S and P. That's that makes sense. 150 may seem a little rich, but that's the way it is. It, it, the corn for the grain traders out there. Think about the corn market. If you're at five dollars and you buy a put for twenty-five cents, you're only spending five percent of the total contract value on that put. So even though you know it, it may cost you fifty cents, it's worth a full five dollars in terms of that corn contract. So that's the or twenty-five cents. So that's the, you know, those are the headlines when they're saying, oh yeah, he bought, you know, a, you know, he has a position that's worth about the same as his fund. Well, he's using options, so he's using quite a bit of leverage there. But regardless, 
it is interesting. It has been in the news. And you know, so if the guy from the big short who was right about subprime is now getting putting on a pretty sizable position in the stock market, you know, what is he seeing? Because stock market's up for the year. Inflation's coming down. Fed looks like they're not going to raise rates as much because the real interest rate, the real, which is the Fed interest rate minus the rate of inflation, is now about two percent. I mean, we've been we've had negative real interest rates for a while. Now we have some pretty good positive real interest rates at two to three percent. The Fed likes that. The economy's picking up. Recession's kind of off the table. And here we go. A very smart guy who is very much right and ahead of the curve on the subprime crisis is now taking a heavy bet on the stock market. So what's interesting, is there's a million stories in the media about it if you if you follow the financial press, and no one seems to know why he is put on this trade. Um, and no one's really asking any questions on why he's putting on this trade. I have a couple of ideas, and you know, just reading about him and watching the movie. And I, I remember that time, you know, he was him. He was in the press a lot and his thoughts on the market eventually came out and what led to it. So here's the deal. When he put those bets on the subprime market, um, he had to do it through the banking system. These weren't exchange traded stuff. It was through the major investment banks that, and, and now you're on, and they're all basically trading with each other. And when he was right and the banking system almost collapsed, you know, he almost didn't get paid off on all his bets because if all the banks went bankrupt, you know, he'd have no collateral. So the Fed actually had to come in and other banks had to come in and make all these guys hold. We're doing the CDOs, you know, bring a term back from the past, make these trades good. And then the Fed stepped in, shored up the system and along we went. I think he learned a lesson from last time where, you know, the last time around he made a very specific bet against a very, for a very specific trade that I go find these investment banks to create these products for him. And it almost, he almost got too cute right by half where he, he was right, but could have been a big loser if, if the whole system got bankrupted and the banks weren't around to pay him out. So, What's what's the next? So then, if that's the case, if you have a, if he thinks something's going to happen in the economy, and it might not even be the U.S. stock market, it could be just anything to cause a financial crisis. What's the most liquid, publicly traded thing you can bet against? Probably is the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq, right? And in this way, if you have the big short bet and you're right, you know, you're not gonna. It's not like the the stock market is at risk of just completely collapsing and going away, right? Where that could have certainly happened to him with the CDO and the subprime bets that he made. So that makes sense. So if that's the case, his bet doesn't necessarily have to be against the stock market. What it could be is just against the financial system as a whole. And for him buying those put options in the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ guarantees him basically the most liquid market possible so he doesn't have to worry about counter counterparty risk. That's the case. What's going on in the world that would cause some kind of financial crisis? My mind, and this is not a popular opinion. It's not a popular opinion among farmers. It's not a popular opinion around people at my brokerage firm. It's not a, it's not a popular uh, opinion among the corporate clients that we talk to here. Because remember, you know, Stonex is a Fortune 100 company. 
And uh, we certainly have a lot of clients on the ag side of the business that are farmers and elevators and ethanol plants and in that side of the business. But listen, there's a lot of food and beverage and manufacturing and clients too. And everyone has the same exposure to China and no one wants to talk about what if they're the black swan, right? No one, it's unpopular in these meetings I go to and the panels that I'm on. And you know, when I, when we, we travel around, we talk to people, it's just kind of one of these things that no one really wants to talk about. And when you look at the financial numbers, it's, while it's hard to get reliable data out of China, not, I mean, I'm sure they have it behind the scenes. They're just not willing to publish it out to the world. Um, at best, they were in recession. At worst, they've got a little bit of a depression going on over there. We're seeing the deflation, which is never good. It's, it, it's it, you never want to see deflation in an economy. And for the first time since the 1960s, the population is declining, and that's not going to change anytime soon. Uh, you know, China had that one-child policy from I want to say the 70s or 80s, right up until like 2010, around there, and you know, that's, that's tough. Like that you can't correct, you can't, you can't correct that change in a population overnight. And they don't really have a robust immigration policy either of, of people coming into the country. So when you take a look at China, they're just starting now on their downward trajectory of a population that's getting older and smaller. They're fighting deflation Definitely a recession, maybe even a depression. That last part, the depression, is you can throw a big asterisk on it. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. That'd be the worst case scenario. And we really don't know what the numbers are. But in the best case scenario, they're having a tough time over there. Um, they have that real estate thing, you know, their largest real estate uh, fund or company just went bankrupt. And we know the guy from the big short, uh, Michael Burry, he, you know, he called the subprime. Right. And and that was a real estate play and a, and a macro economy and systemic failure play. I have no idea and I have zero inside knowledge, but of what's going on. But if I were just kind of piecing, putting parts of the puzzle together, my idea would be he sees. He sees the problems going on in China, that things can escalate down fast, just like they did with the U.S. subprime market. Maybe something similar is going on in China, not just with real estate, but the economy in a whole and the deflation. And if he really wants to take a big bet on it, because if if there was a big issue in that in the Chinese system, it would absolutely bleed into the United States and the world economy. And therefore, the best way to to play that bet would for him in any kind of size would be in the in the US market, the S&P and the NASDAQ, which are arguably the two biggest ones he can he can play in, doesn't have to worry about counterparty risk, right? Because if you know, those are the two biggest indexes we have. And if he's right, then he's gonna get paid off as opposed to like trying to go to some bank again and try to get a very specialized product, all right? Against, um, against things he may not even be you know, be able to price over, you know, in China or some kind of index over there. And kind of learned his lesson the, the, you know, the first time around on this. So 
that's some, I mean, listen, that's a combination of just analysis of what's going on and some, you know, pretty aggressive speculation on my part on what might be going on. But I would not be surprised if this was a China play on his part. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Again, not a popular opinion. It's not good for business, not good for my business either. So it's not, it's not something I'm rooting for, but it's just, uh, it's just something to keep an eye on. I probably will start looking into E-mini S&P puts. I mean, the guy called the, <laughs> called the subprime crisis, right? So uh, and I think, so we'll probably take a look into maybe some S&P, December S&P put spreads. Um, maybe look for some things where what if there was a 5, 10 or 25, you know, 20% correction in the stock market, just in case this guy's right. I think it'd be interesting to take a look at. So that's something that we'll do. Um, so yeah, so those are just my macro mark and kind of a bummer way to start the podcast, but I don't know. It was in the news this week. I've been seeing it in the press. I've had conversations about it. My gut feeling is that's what, that's what it's about. We'll find out. Um, even if there, by the way, even though, like, even if something were going to happen, as anyone who's lived through a financial or systemic crisis before, doesn't last that long. Like you get the big shock to the downside. And then eventually things come back, right? Um, and it wouldn't even be you know, part of this country; be halfway around the world. Um, and a lot of other nations during subprime recovered faster than the United States did, because it wasn't, you know, even though their markets went down, they recovered faster because they weren't the ones dealing with the subprime crisis. So, I don't know. It, it it's just it it could be a temporary issue, but it could be a big one. I if it doesn't happen. If that's not what this is about, if this is just really more purely uh, a, a stock market play, because we're up 15, you know, 15 to 20 percent this year, I want to say between the S&P and and the and the Nasdaq, um, you know, then maybe maybe things don't maybe things are a little bit more rosier for commodities and grains and ags. When I take a look at the, so we'll switch on over to the grain and the ag markets here. Here's the deal: we are in mid-August. And from mid-August until mid to late September, historically, seasonally, it's not a great time to be long the grain markets. Um, if you're a farmer, you probably don't want to sell into it if, if you can avoid it. If you're a buyer of commodities, um, you know, you're, you're a manufacturer, a food and beverage company, you're the end user, it's probably the time to buy. I mean, in, heading into the end of August into September, it's usually a buy zone for those types of things, um, for those types of purchases. So, and I see no reason why there's any difference here. I think the, you know, you'll get your updates, but it's just hard to be, unless you have a drought and some very tight stocks, it is just difficult to be bullish the grain markets historically in August and September. It's much easier to be bullish the grain markets as you get towards the end of September and October and all that harvest pressure comes off the market. A couple of things, the bearish nature of the market right now in grains and oil seeds. I just like for corn, for example, new crop corn is December. Old crop corn in terms of pricing and grain origination is September corn. So anyone looking to set base, you know, basically do basis contracts, deferred pricing, any kind of grain origination tool out there that has to do with old crop, Every, whatever wasn't priced needs to be priced by the end of August. And what happens is 
you get a lot of you know delays and then everyone has to a lot of people have to price contracts that green orb have been shipped out but they still have to price it and then when the when that happens is the farmer calls the elevator they price the grain the elevator then you know has to take that buy price they may or may not have already sold it they have to do the opposite on the futures market and we sell it and the prices get sold regardless of what's going on there there's downward pricing market the downward pricing pressure and that's just the way it is that's just the way it is for the last two weeks in august so there's nothing you can do about it i have a feeling we'll bottom out sometime usually a week before after first notice day on on the corn market beans we'll see what happens here one interesting theme that's been going on in the country is the beans are disappointing in central illinois i've had some conversations about it also in iowa and i don't maybe it's because we were too hot and dry for too long in the earlier part of the growing season and basically the soybean development out in the field on the country just came to a standstill, you know, until the temperatures got better and there was actually precipitation. And now the pods, either the pod count is small, they're not filling the way they thought they would. I even hear some stories, not as many about corn, but something, you know, some about corn, just about, you know, the kernels just aren't there the way they thought they would be. And I get all that. We'll see how widespread it is. And we have the crop tours next week. So there's going to be some pretty big crop tours going on here now that we're in the end of August, there's a major one. Uh, Pro Farmer is going to have their big crop tour next week. And we're going to see the pictures and the comments and the analysts, and it's going to be all over Ag Twitter. So we'll see. But that is that is a that is a potential bullish catalyst here heading into the end of the month. If the yields are lower than what the USDA is uh, has been publicizing. Um, if so, I see no point. I'm not a huge fan of selling the corn market. I do think we'll get lower if you have if you have shorts on and hedges. You might as well just ride those out to first notice day. Um, and then if you're a buyer, I'd be buying corn in this window between you know mid-August to mid-September is probably your window to to get that done. And then the wheat market, high protein wheat seems tight to me. But you know, I get questions all the time. You know, why is the wheat market going down? You know, we're tight. There's problems in the Black Sea. Russia's bombing Ukraine. You just got to remember, we ha we're having a ton of new crop wheat come back on the market here. Winter wheat is now on the market in the northern hemisphere. That's all been harvested. We're about to make a pretty good spring wheat crop. It may not be perfect. There may be some issues in Canada. I get that. There'll be some issues in the United States. But Europe's going to have also a big crop and so is russia and 80 percent of the world's exportable wheat comes from north northern hemisphere and between the end of may up until probably mid-september october all this winter and spring wheat is harvested and hits the market and it's hard to rally it is hard to rally during that period so and this is no different so we are transition and that's the transition you know from old crop to new crop in the in the wheat market and that's what we're seeing now Chicago wheat does look bearish on paper or a little bit more bearish. Kansas City and spring wheat look a little bit more bullish. Should continue to see the, especially the high protein wheat elevated. Canola, the USDA has canola at 19 million metric tons in the last WASDI. 
I think that's generous. And from the Canadian farmers I've been talking to for the past couple of weeks, they're not thrilled with, uh, with how the, the, the pods are looking. Um, and those, I wouldn't be surprised if we're at a 17 or 18 million metric ton uh, canola, canola crop. Now, if that's the case, we're not extremely tight, but we are tight and we'll be tight in, in soybeans and in canola for another six months at least. Canola, you really can't get a shot of canola, meaningful shot of canola. And Australia does produce canola, but they also grow a lot of winter seeded canola um, or winter canola. So I don't know. It, it's hard to see. I think we're going to be tight for canola for another year. Not as tight as we were after the 2021 drought, but but tight. Soybeans will be tight for six months. Now, if, if South America has, plants a lot of acres and has a good crop, then that tightness goes away. And that would be a drag on canola and palm and sunflower along with it. But we definitely have, I, I shouldn't say definitely, I think we have a tight, a tight soybean crop here for the next 12 months. I mean, for the next six months. Corn, not so much. Chicago wheat, not so much. High protein wheat, yes. Oil seeds, yes. And that's the dynamic we're going to have. Now, if I need to be, if I want to be bullish about any ag market, I'm probably most bearish on corn, but we've already come down a ton in corn. Um, I don't know how much lower we'll go here. Um, famous last words, but I don't, I don't know how much, I mean, I don't, I don't think we're going to 350. We could go to 450, 425, I guess. But uh, even then, you know, it wouldn't, we wouldn't, I don't think we'd live down there for long. And it'd be more be a seasonal um, influences on that. As far as the bull side, though, I mean, soybean oil looks bullish, and the reason being, the reason I say that is, we just continue to increase crush capacity here, and soybean oil with renewable biofuels is going to be a cornerstone of the green energy plan here in the United States and in Canada, and that's a big deal. We saw. The same thing happened with corn for ethanol with renewable fuel standards in 2006, 2007. If you go back and look at the charts of corn, monthly charts of corn, before then, corn was a two, three, maybe a $4 market. And then basically policy was put into place and they said, hey, United States used to produce 11 billion bushels of corn a year. Now we need to produce 15 billion bushels of corn a year in order to eventually meet over the next five years this ethanol, corn ethanol mandate. And you know what happened? Corn, we went from producing 11 billion to producing 15 billion. And to do that, prices had to go up and keep corn high. And prices in corn went from a two to four twenty-five market to basically a three to eight dollar market. So or a three fifty to seven fifty market, whatever you wanna however you want to describe the corn market from 2007 till now. There is a distinct possibility that something similar is happening in in soybean oil. Soybean oil used to be a 20, 30, 40 cent per pound market. And if we're, if you take a look at the crush capacity and how much soybean oil and canola oil we're going to need for these mandates and these policies that now that it's becoming United States energy policy. Um, you can make the argument soybean oil follow the soybean oil price ranges kind of follow a similar pattern to what happened in corn. And the days of 20 cents soybean oil are gone. Maybe the same way $2 corn is gone, right? You can make that argument. And maybe soybean oil now trades from let's say a 40 
to 80 range, a 40 to 70 range to 40 to 80 range. Just in this, and I know that high end sounds high, but think about corn. Corn went from a two to a, between a two and four dollar market to basically a three and eight dollar market because of ethanol. And I think that soybean oil went from basically a 20 to 40 cent market to maybe a 30 to 80 cent market, the 40 to 80 cent market because of what's happening here over the next few years of renewable biofuels. And we're in the we're only in the third inning fourth inning of this soybean oil we're going to probably double production over the next couple of years or capacity and what we're going to see here is there's just going to be less soybeans and canola available as the whole oil seed for the export market everything gets crushed here the oil either goes for you know food and then what's not needed for food all goes to renewable biofuel or biodiesel and then what's left is really the meal and tradi our traditional buyers of the whole soybean and the canola seed is eventually going to have to be meal. And, you know, and it, it that and then the oil's not available. And that's what keeps oil elevated almost permanently the same way ethanol kind of kept corn permanently high. Now, again, this is speculation. And but it's the way I see the markets, and I'm going to be writing about just some of the ideas we have on bean oil and how you know over time here. I like if I got to be bullish on one thing, it's going to be the bean oil market, and we're going to probably take a look at ways of getting long. And whether it is from a hedge perspective because you're a company that uses bean oil, or if it's a spec play, um, there are going to be opportunities in the bean oil market, and it's not just this year, I think it's next year and the year after. So um, and I'm happy to, to go over that. So those are my thoughts on the market for this week. Thanks for everyone who listened. Um, I'm happy to talk to anyone about the stock market and also soybean oil, and we can start looking at some stuff um, going forward. If anyone wants to talk about other grains and oil seeds, happy to do that. And uh, I'm still bullish on the energy market, but I, I can't have these podcasts go on for hours. They gotta, we got to wrap them up at a reasonable time. So today was. Uh, today was really more focused on those. So have a great week, everyone. I will talk to you later. And again, my number is 312-706-7610. Email address is craig.turner at stonex.com. Thanks very much. This material is conveyed as a solicitation for entering into a derivatives transaction. This material has been prepared by a Daniels Trading Broker who provides research market commentary and trade recommendations as part of his or her solicitation for accounts and solicitation for trades. Daniels Trading, its principals, brokers, and employees may trade in derivatives for their own accounts or for the accounts of others. Due to various factors such as risk tolerance, margin requirements, trading objectives, short-term versus long-term strategies, technical versus fundamental market analysis, and other factors, such trading may result in the initiation or liquidation of positions that are different from or contrary to the opinions and recommendations contained therein. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future performance. The risk of loss in trading futures contracts or commodity options can be substantial, and therefore investors should understand the risks involved in taking leveraged positions and must assume responsibility for the risks associated with such investments and for their results. You should carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for you in light of your circumstances and financial resources. You should read the risk disclosure accessed at www www.danielstrading.com. Daniel's Trading is not affiliated with, nor does it endorse any trading system, newsletter, or similar service. Daniel's Trading does not guarantee or verify any performance claims made by such systems or services.